This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Hello, and welcome to Suite 212, putting the arts in their social, cultural, political and historical contexts, here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Still London's best and brightest radio station after 21 years on the air. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and this week I'm joined in the studio by three people who've been involved with Bookwork's seminar series of experimental texts, in which, and I quote, the novel has a nervous breakdown. The editor of the seminar book series, Stuart Holm, was born and lives in London. He's the author of 15 published novels and several works of cultural commentary. His film book Re-Enter the Dragon, Genre Theory, Bruceploitation and The Sleazy Joys of Lowbrow Cinema was published a few months ago. His collected poems, entitled Send Cash, was issued in May last year. He's also an artist with work in the Arts Council of England collection and a winner of the Hamlin Award. His most recent solo show was Jewel Flying Kicks at Five Years Gallery in London in June 2018. He continues to organise and participate in activist projects. Lizzie Homersham is a writer and editor with a background studying French and Spanish art and art history. She started working for Bookworks in 2015, completed the Whitney Independent Study Programme in New York in 2016-17 and then moved back to London. What's Love Got to Do with Teleportation is Lizzie's publishing project, the third instalment of which takes place at Jupiter Woods in London on the 25th of May. Her arts criticism has been published widely, including in Art Monthly, Art Papers and The Wire magazine, and online at artforum.com, artagenda.com and rhizome.org. She co-founded Aorist, a collective publication for the elsewhere unfinished or otherwise disallowed, and has collaborated with Channels, a feminist scriptwriting and performance group. She currently volunteers with Nelma, the North East London Migrant Action Group. Bridget Penny was born in Edinburgh and lives in Brighton. Her book publications are Honeymoon with Death and Other Stories from 1991 and Index, published by Bookworks as the opening entry in the seminar series in 2008. Her stories and non-fiction have appeared in magazines and online. Her novel Licorice will be published by Bookworks this autumn as part of their new series Interstices. An open call for further titles in this series, which Bridget will be guest editing, will be announced at some point in the future. So Stuart, Bridget, Lizzie, welcome to the show. Hi. Great to have you all with me, with me in the studio today. Uh, it's been a while since I've been in the resonance studio due to being away and um, pre-recording elsewhere. So it's nice to be back here. Um, I thought we could start the show um, with, with you, Lizzie. Uh, I'd like to just ask you about Bookworks, who they are, what they publish, what's ma- what makes them distinctive in the independent publishing landscape. Sure, so Bookworks was founded in 1984 by Jane Rolo and Rob Hadrill, and they are co-directors, both with backgrounds in bookbinding. And they initially had um, a space as well near here in Borough, and gradually over the years, um, Jane especially developed the publishing side of the organization. and. Um, now the organization is based in Shoreditch and has these two sides with bookbinding on the one hand offering more of a service to many many artists many with a commercial gallery representation but also with um, they're working with uh, students who might be wanting some special presentation or box for their degree show there's there's more of a service on that side Um, and then on the other hand there's um, Bookworks Publishing, which commissions and has a public programme, and the organisation as a whole is is founded by, um, is funded, sorry, as a national portfolio organisation of the Arts Council, but also has has to, as all of them do, generate its own funds in some way. And it's pretty small, um, we're all part-time there, and it's about to go through a big moment of transition because Jane Rolo is leaving, um, because she feels it's time to give someone else a chance to direct the organisation and her role is 
the deadline for her job is today. So anyone looking to apply, go to the website bookworks.org.uk. And there's some really incredible publications um, to discover. Um, the more, the longer I've worked there, the the more, you know, there's there's often a time when I find out about something new, and I think, why didn't I know about this before? Because because it's small, and because some things go out of print. Um, there is the website which has this huge archive in it, um, but you need to know where to look or to have time for that. So there are early publications by Cornelia Parker, Tessita Dean, Adrian Piper, um, Jimmy Durham, Susan Hiller, um, and more recently, Katrina Palmer, who is in the seminar series, Hamja Assan, Slavs and Tartars, Clooney Reed, Lord Prevost. And um, very recently, just last week actually, we got Sophia Almaria's new book of collected writing come back from press called Sad Sack. And Boucher Khalili's book, The Tempest Society, is another new title. Lexicon by Law Prevost is another new title. Um, and I'm currently working with Erica Scorti on an issue of The Happy Hypocrite, which is a journal for and about experimental art writing. Um, or experimental writing, I'm not sure if it has art in the title or not, come to think of it. That was founded by Maria Fisco 10 years ago, and um, Maria guest edited the first five and then gave over the guest editing to a different artist for each issue. So, um, yeah, that's currently Erica Scorti. And then following a similar structure to the seminar series, but a bit more modest in scope, it has three titles rather than Stuart's nine, um, we have the Contact series of books guest edited by Hannah Black with three titles forthcoming. Um, they're really exciting. They're shaping up at the moment by Hamishi Farah, Mumtaza Mary and Dorika Shields. And um, just to answer to how it is different from other publishers, I suppose it really does sit in the art landscape, if that's the right way to put it. Um, because um, it publishes books by artists, many of whom haven't published before, and it doesn't uniquely publish writing either. There are often um, combinations of image and text. Um, it really is quite experimental in, in the form, and um, rather than... We're not a publisher that tends to, although there are occasional exceptions, we're not a publisher that tends to accept fully-fledged manuscripts and with someone who's just looking for a, for a copy editor and a printer and someone to do the kind of decorative work of design and distribution, it's much more involved than that. And so we talk with the artist, try and understand what their practice is, try and understand why publishing is a and the book is a format that suits them. Or sometimes there's a spoken word element, performance aspect to the work. Um, it might be more of a kind of printed ephemera project. There's so much variation. Um, and, yeah, I won't speak too much longer, but um, it is a bit different from some small literary presses or poetry presses cropping up now, um, many of which are really brilliant. Um, we have worked with poets recently, Polly Pester, on her book, go to reception and ask for Sarah in Red Felt Tip. That was a book that she published on the back of a um, Goldsmiths Women's Art Library residency and that had a, a full um, symposium um, alongside the launch of the book. And Sophie Collins published Small White Monkeys recently and Sophie Collins is a poet who has published with, I think, some of the presses you're probably alluding to, but this was a book that came out of a residency again with Glasgow Women's Library and um, it's not a book of poetry it's a fragmented essay so it, it allowed her in response to an open call to do something that wasn't really so possible in the in the um, poetry world so now to just um, talk a little bit very briefly about um, and then I'll pass over to Stuart and Bridget the seminar series um, is a book of is a sorry is a series of um, nine books and um, 
It's not my project, actually. It's really something that Gavin Everall, the editor at Bookworks that I assist, has worked on closely with Stuart Home as guest editor. And um, Bookworks approached Stuart, um, and Stuart, they approached him with a really open-ended invitation that I'm sure he can speak more about. Um, Stuart came back and said he wanted to do something over three years that would be nine books, one of which should be his. Um, and yeah, we have them all as props right now that you obviously cannot see. <laughs> we're on the radio. Uh, the, Stuart is holding radio, up a copy but, of Aliasing um, by Mara Coulson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's one of the recent ones. I'm not going to talk too much more, though I can come back in. Um, but it, came, it followed this open call structure that Bookworks is pretty committed to um, because alongside quite established artists, they have a strong commitment to working with people who um, don't have a platform for their work. So the open call structure facilitates that. And um, there's a quite generous framing involved in an open call. And then people send in all kinds of um, responses as to what they would like to publish. And that normally involves a sample and an intention to go on. Yeah. Great. Well, that. That's uh, a very nice uh, overview of, of Bookworks and an introduction to the seminar series. I can heartily recommend the Holly Pester text, which I bought and read a couple mm. of years ago and really enjoyed. And um, I'm also particularly looking forward to uh, Erica Scorti's uh, Happy Hypocrite. Um, Erica is an artist and writer who I know very well. Um, I like her work a lot. Um, it's also a very interesting Twitter presence. Um, so thoroughly looking forward to that. Um, Stuart, I'd like to bring you in at this point and you know ask you to um, elaborate on exactly what the seminar series is, you know who you've published, um, why it was launched, and, and so forth. Uh, well, I'd had a long connection with Bookworks. I'd first come across uh, Jane, who founded it in mid '80s, uh, because I was working with some people called Art in Ruins, uh, Hannah Bowles and Glyn Banks. Um, sh doing group shows with them and they did a show at Bookworks I think it was 85 or might have been 84 uh, so that's when I first came across Jane and then Gavin interviewed me when he was uh, doing his dissertation at um, Middlesex uh, in the 90s so I had a long connection with both of them and had occasionally done uh, conferences Bookworks organised and had applied to do things with Bookworks um, and never been successful. <laughs> <laughs> Just kind of odd little bits and pieces here. So I was um, very happily surprised when they said, would you like to edit a series? Um, seminar kind of came from two things, one of which was the uh, Wallace Berman um, Loose Leaf um, publication seminar, uh, which uh, was the first to publish um, parts of Kane's book by Alexander Trockey, who's a British beatnik, uh, notorious drug addict, and was also a friend of my mother's in the um, 60s. Uh, and um, that was one, le one place of inspiration. And then Trockey himself um, had a project called uh, Sigma, and in the late 80s, an editor in Scotland called Peter Kravitz, who'd uh, discovered James Kelman and Tom Leonard and people, so who's an important presence in Scottish literature, uh, started a, a Sigma series um, with Polygon, a publisher in Scotland. And my first novel, Pure Mania, was published by them. Uh, Peter picked it up and was very supportive. And then Bridget's book, Honeymoon with Death, was also supported by... Um, Indeed. ..published by Polygon. So there were these different connections. And I'd met uh, Wallace Berman, sadly, was died in a hit-and-run accident, who did the original seminar. But I'd been booked in Beyond Baroque in Las Vegas in 1995 by his son, Tosh Berman, who's also a publisher, a um, very interesting figure. So there were a lot of connections. I checked with Tosh, is it OK if we use this name? You know, I'm not trying to cash in on your father or anything. Um, and he was fine with it, you know, happy. So uh, we went ahead, and the idea was that I would, for each of the three years we were going to do the books, I would pick one book and then we'd have an open submission for the other other two. Um, Bridget's book index I'd read back in the 90s and thought it was publishable then, but Bridget had kept working on it, very um, particular about what it should look like. Um, it was 
and it made sense because we'd both been in the Sigma series that Peter Kravitz had edited and then we took the books that came in uh, one of the books was very interesting but needed a little bit of editorial work and the gendered male artist writer of that uh, wasn't happy to have it edited in the way I wanted so I think Bookworks were quite surprised because their attitude was that people can do things that fail if they want it's a learning opportunity but my attitude was no this is my publishing series and I'm not going to have a book that I'm not happy with and I'm quite happy to sort out what's wrong with the book but if it can't be sorted out because the artist writer won't allow me to edit it and it's not good enough then it won't be published uh, which I think was a Bookworks found a very surprising attitude <laughs> but obviously I'd worked in um, commercial publishing industry as well as um, art world so that was my attitude and my name was on the series um, Yeah, I mean on, on that, on the uh, relationship between writer and editor um, I think the second uh, the second entry in the series was actually a, a kind of reworking of, of one of your novels wasn't it? Yeah that was Maxie Kim who was a Korean American who lives in LA I'd never heard of him uh, we went through the manuscripts and we picked the two the one that didn't get published and Maxie's that did get published I realised that he'd based his book on my novel, 69 Things to Do with Dead Princess, uh, because I could spot odd f fragments of sentences and even the odd whole paragraph uh, that I'd written in the book. Uh, I didn't say anything to anyone at Bookworks, and I told Gavin after we, we published the book, and he was a little surprised <laughs> because he didn't realise that I'd kept quiet. Um, but I thought it was a really interesting to kind of... where I'd taken a lot of kind of UK literary references in, in my original novel, Maxie... Um, had substituted them for Korean and American references, and I found that very interesting, so I was very pleased with the work. And obviously, um, cleverly pl he cleverly placed the book with someone he was flattering uh, with his, his work. And again, the editing process was very easy because I was dealing with something that was structured in, based on something I'd done. But Maxie was very surprised at my insistence that we use correct um, punctuation or uh, that if we broke rules it was considered they were consistently broken. He thought I was this kind of wild, crazy writer and that I wouldn't care about um, things like that. But he was fine with, with us cleaning up the text a little bit, but it was minor. No, I mean, it's all about ensuring that the text just have a clear internal logic, right? Exactly, yeah. And what is an interesting kind of experiment to read and what just doesn't bring anything to that? Yeah. yeah. Gavin and I were comparing... Um, um, Blood Rights of the Bourgeoisie to Molisa Roberts's I need to get the, the pseudonymous author name of that right Molisa Roberts's head book um, to yours but that is it doesn't, I don't know if you're familiar with, with this book. I haven't read it. No. It's on um, it's based on the fictional gallery head gallery um, and it, it has some, it has something in common with, with Stuart's work but it, it works it up in a much more conventional story way and it's an, it's an art world satire I mean one of the things when I was told I could do my own book of course was that I thought well what would I basically not be able to get anyone to publish that I wanted to do and I'd never written a book in the second person so that's what I did and I took a lot of spam and reworked the spam into the narrative um, this is for blood rights of the bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I made, made the whole book about the art world and the spam where you get kind of um, penis enlargement spam um, and it's generic because you're supposed to insert your fantasy into it I thought what happens if you're, you're specific so you can take all these art world figures and insert them into the spam it kind of changes the meaning so there's a, a not really a plot because it doesn't really have a plot but basically there's a character who's uh, spamming the art world with this uh, altered material uh, taken from real spam that came into my inbox um, and uh, that that's the book was, you know, I spent a lot of time working on it, but I was very happy to be able to do a book that I thought if I just produced this, basically no one would have agreed to publish. <laughs> um, but then we should move on to the other um, authors we published. In the next series, I was really impressed with a manuscript that came in from Katrina, pa Katrina Palmer, The Dark Object. And, you know, I've now had the mortifying experience of being asked to go and see curators at big institutions, and I get there thinking that they want to talk to me about my work, so I bring portfolio of work to show them 
but it turns out they want me to tell them about um, what's hot in the art world because I'm the man who discovered Katrina Palmer, <laughs> although I think she discovered herself <laughs> and sent in a very good uh, proposal, which we were very, very, very happy to, to publish. Um, so that was good luck. And that uh, year we also published Mark Waugh's book, um, who was someone I'd known for years. I'd met in Brighton in the um, 1980s. I've never lived in Brighton, but I used to spend a lot of time down there. And um, he'd done a book with Pulp Faction, I think it was, Come. And so I knew he had another book written, so I said, could I have a look at it? And I did quite a lot of editing on it, but Mark's very easy to edit because you can just strike out whole lines and paragraphs. You don't. He's got a very lyrical writing style. Um, but I, I just felt he had a little bit too much scaffolding to support the structure, and that could be knocked out without me actually having to change anything that was left. It was, a, again, a very easy edit. He was very... He was amazed because he said, you've lost two-thirds of the writing, <laughs> and it still <laughs> reads really well. I said, yeah, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> uh, so that, that, was, that was Mark's book, which was really good. And um, another author we had was uh, Jarrett Kobeck. He submitted one year um, the material that became the book Atta, which was uh, published by Semiotext about the 9-11 events. Uh, I felt that was far too literary. Uh, for what I was doing, his his whole approach in that book. Um, so I rejected it. And then the following year he sent in his Ho 999, which he kind of thought was a rebuke to me for rejecting his more literary work, which is a, a very good book, but not what I was wanting for the series, um, and got far more attention than our book did, although I Hate the Internet, which he did mm. later, got even more. Um, but I really liked the book, and again, he wasn't difficult to edit, except he'd had a dare with a friend about including a very bad poem, um, so he had to have it in. In the end, we compromised by putting it in as a, an appendix, because I didn't really want it in the main body of the text. Um, and he rejected possibly the best cover in the series, um, but that's his prerogative and got one which he might have liked more than the one he was originally offered but um, I was very disappointed it didn't get used the original cover but uh, it's all a negotiation with the what was the cover it was uh, Fraser Muggeridge who I asked to be the designer for the series so he does the text and the covers as well and he's a really good text designer as well as a good cover designer it was based on kind of Brazilian concrete poetry of the 1950s and I don't think the association resonated, resonated with Jarrett and he thought it was meant to be like computer art or something but it clearly wasn't to me um, so that was that was that cover, we lost our best cover but I also understand that Peniente were originally going to do I Hate the Internet but they had an argument about the cover and so he <laughs> self-published and used a publicist to publicise it so <laughs> Peniente yeah. lost out on a very good book. Peniente being I think a Los Angeles based publisher run by uh, Rebecca Vichel who um who I'm a big fan of. I really, really like what they publish, and it, it feels to me like Peniante is the only other publisher that I know of that might publish some of these these works. I think they're quite an interesting um, kind of transatlantic comparison to book works and yeah. to this series. Yeah, no, I mean, she did um, first edition of my novel, Mandy, Charlie and Mary Jane, and she also republished my second novel, Defying Pose. Um, and she's published a few books by Jarrett before they had the falling out over the cover. And, um, yeah, I think the, there are parallels. She is the closest kind of conceptually to what I wanted to do with the seminar series. And uh, I th I'm not sure she's still publishing, actually. But um, yeah, I, I think she is, but we'll check up on that. Um, mm -hmm. I'd like to move the conversation on now. Obviously, we have um, Bridget Penny, the author of the first entry in the seminar series, um, Index, from 2008. Um, so maybe, Bridget, if you would like to... Um, Read read a passage or two from from Index first, and then we can talk about some of the themes in the book and how it fits into this series. Yes, that would be great. Um, so thank you very much for inviting me on the show. It's a pleasure. Um, index. Um, if I'm going to introduce it, it's um, a little hard to know where to start. Um, but uh, if possible, I just say it really is basically a complete rag bag of various things that were interesting me at the time, and um, it had a long gestation that Stuart's already referred to. I mean, it made me sound like it, he did, he did it, what Stuart said made it sound a bit, a bit like I was sort of um, st stuck in a garret, sort of working away at it very hard for like 18 years, which was not at all the case. I had a lot of other stuff going on in my life. 
um, with, um, but uh, yeah, but I came back to it and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually really um, still so pleased that um, seminar that's included in the seminar series, so yeah. And it's in its um, second edition as well, it's in a second print run and um, yeah, it's, I, it's one that I read very recently just now and it's um, it's kind of like a love story I would say but it's also you're finding your way around the text and and you know that things are coming from elsewhere but um, there's there's no sense that you're supposed to try and follow the clues and figure it out. Oh that's great I mean I'm always very gratified when people talk to me about about it and they say things which didn't occur to me at all while I was writing and it's like yes yes please just just um read all this stuff into it that that's one of the reason one of the things i kind of hope to to achieve with the book would do, that, that it would be something that people could you know basically sort of do what they like with so i'm going to read a uh, short section um which is entitled forgeries i'm just reading the first half of this and um yeah um it's kind of this bit is a little bit 18th century a little bit french revolution but it's actually set in london and um should i just i think i'd probably better just read it and yeah Okay. Forgeries. In summer, ice cream was sold in the streets and the water carts went slowly, pulled by horses to sprinkle the dust. Wild rocket grew by London Bridge and marvellous prodigies were reported. Dragons with fiery breath, their wings great membranes, giants at the fair. The pattern of tattoos had started to cover Roland's back working down from his left shoulder. Persephone had put them there. She would appear again and work on him as he lay in a state between sleep and waking. He knew better than to protest. She would hurt him no more than she could help. Roland Franklin's Cabinet of Curiosities, 26 items as yet uncollected. A book that contains all knowledge abstracted. I stare at alphabets I don't understand. Their unknown systems thrill me. Hieroglyphs assume the direct transmission of images. I have a sense of power grasped at one remove. My body, that most curious structure. Bones, nerves, sinews. The circulation of my blood round a prescribed course, nourishing my skin, hair and nails, drawing in oxygen for my brain. The vegetable lamb, brought from Persia by Mr. Tradescant, as evidence of the sympathies that exist between vegetable and animal forms. A pack of cards that shows the different phases of the moon. Ascending numbers show the stages of increase. The suits are to be distinguished by curious features of lunar geography. The silent sea, the mountains. The face cards are black their value to be determined as the player desires. My knave is Serrano de Bergerac, who rubbed bone marrow on his body to travel there. My queen is Persephone. Okay. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, the the novel uses, um, uses all sorts of um, sort of late 18th and early 19th century um, historical references in lots of interesting ways. Um, the bookworks press release talks about uh, how the book rewires London psychogeography via historical detours uh, through occult shenanigans involving Count Alessandro de Cagliostro and his arrest in relation to the uh, diamond necklace affair in the 18th century. Uh, but there are also some interesting references to the um, British imperialist uh, Lord Gordon um, quite a lot of use of the uh, the doomed Franklin expedition through mm. northern Canada and the um, the ships that disappeared in the 1820s I think and one of which was recently rediscovered um, and the Chevalier Dion the um, late 18th early 19th century uh, French spy in exile in the UK who was uh, lived lived as a woman um, and is sort of now regarded as an early kind of transgender figure. I wonder if you'd like to talk a bit more about the use of the historical material in the book and how it grounds grounds the narrative. Um, I'm not sure it entirely kind of grounds the narrative. I think it probably just sends it off all in, in 
all sorts of wild directions. But I mean, uh, um, but I, I, I think one of the interesting things about actually kind of putting stuff together, and when I originally started writing the book, um, I wasn't really kind of writing it as a a, a fixed narrative at all. I, I, I the, the reason it was called Index was because I found this um, Index file in a charity shop, which had you know, one of those old-fashioned, probably don't even have them anymore, but and those old-fashioned ones which have a compartment with each letter. Sort of like a concertina. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah Narrow yeah. at the bottom and yeah. fanning out. Yeah, yeah. So I got on those and thought, well, I'll just like, you know, do something for each letter and sort of stick it together and hope that it, it kind of works. Um, I, I kind of gave up on this quite quickly because I sort of wrote some of the sections I, I weren't really very good, but it, I mean that that's st that still is the it, it, it's the, the sort of rump of that idea is is in there and then it kind of developed in different directions. But yeah, um, what you said about the the, the Franklin expedition has, has been interesting because there has been so much stuff about it in the last few years. I mean, when I was writing that in the um, 1990s, I guess most of that material. I mean, the the ships were still lost. I mean, there'd been all that. I mean, it had been a huge thing in 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 sort of mid Victorian Britain. I think I think that's why I. It was just re really interesting the whole the whole thing that this this daft expedition. I mean, Franklin was a former governor of Tasmania. Um, you know, who's I think he was in his sixties, and there were various other people who were who were first picked. To, perhaps I should say that what he was trying to discover was the Northwest Passage, which you know people had obviously been. That was one of the sort of holy grails of kind of um, exploration at the at the time, and and um, so when he finally sort of set off, it was you know a very big sort of thing, and the fact that after you know a couple of years, no one had heard anything from him, um, and then all these ships were sent out to try and find him, and none, none of them were successful, but there was a a huge reward offered by I think the Admiralty at the time offered twenty thousand pounds for any news of the expedition. Which in uh, which looking um, in in today's money is is nearly two million. So I mean it was, it was a lot of a lot of cash and yeah. And there were certainly kind of ballads and I've sort of seen reports of like you know people having seances to to try and sort of find out sort of where the ships um, you know where Franklin was so they could go and claim the money. Um, uh, yeah, I found the. Um the ground to be very kind of shifting in in this text and I wondered if um, in terms of uh, historical psychogeography whether your approach to writing and to found material whether you were thinking that through a structure of the psyche or remembering or finding this finding out about history I don't know I might be on the wrong track but I found there to be Lots of references to seeing and not seeing and blindness um, scattered through the text, and the, there's also some Greek myth references in there. Um, and I should have mentioned this earlier, but Bridget is um, guest editing a new series called Interstices, and um, I've read the manuscript called Licorice, which is just brilliant. And it, but it is incredibly different from this. Um, it's a it's a more straightforward narrative, mm. um, although yeah, it it has a a start and an end, and and so does this one. But you're following a character, you're following a set of characters a little bit more, and, and the plot is emerging, not in a conventional way, but in a a more conventional way than Index. Mm. So, and um, just to think a bit more about what you were finding out and how you were structuring it I, I was just thinking while Stuart was talking about how the the design of the seminar series has this other found element to it, all the, all the covers apart from I think one um, are found in Kings and Waste Market they're somehow ready made covers um, or variations on an idea of, a, of found material Yes, I mean that was I, I was really um, so delighted by the cover which Fraser did for for Index and and yes, I mean the, the, it, it's it's made it it, it it incorporates some glass some old glass slides, which Fraser actually kind of found in in Kingsland Kingsland Waste, um, which which um, which um, absolutely delighted me when he he said that because um, 
some of the material which I'd used um, for the book and, uh, was taken from a couple of old, uh, old um, books of postcards that I found Kings and Waste, like you know, sort of um, um, several years before Fraser went there. Um, and the, these were sort of like 19th century, uh, sorry, early 20th century um, books of postcards of Versailles, and another one of the Palais de Justice in Paris, and the um, just uh, I'm just going back to um, the thing about the found material. Um, sort of that, that there are texts in those which I incorporated in, in index, and also I've still got the postcard books, and I was looking at them a few days ago, and. And um, I, I, I can see sort of how how these scenes, which I sort of set in Versailles, are sort of really sort of taking these postcards and actually just you know the, the, all the details are sort of there. Um, so. Yeah, sorry, just to, to clarify, I'm guessing Kingsland Waste is in uh, Dalston. Yes, sorry, wasn't yeah. Dalston <laughs> uh, for anyone who's not as familiar with the part of East London where I now live as uh, <laughs> as I am. Um, one other thing I'd just like to talk to you about. Um, in an, I think it's an interview with Stuart, which is on his website, and we'll send out after the show. Um, you know, you also you sort of discuss uh, Atlas Press, which is run by Alistair Brocci and others. Alistair is part of the London Institute of Pataphysics, uh, and they've published all sorts of really interesting um, writers, old and new. Lots of people associated with the Dada and Surrealist movement, with the Vienna Actionists from the nineteen sixties, and so forth. Um, and they've published authors like Comrade Bayer and uh, Eureka Zern. Um, and I wondered if any of you would like to talk about the influence of Atlas on, on some of this writing and Bridget maybe on your writing in particular? Um, so yes, as, 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 uh, um, I remember um, so getting, um, I think it was uh, uh, um, Atlas Anthology, I think it was the third of, of a series they did, which is called Black Letters Unleashed, which was all sort of German, um, sort of Austrian sort of writing of the... I guess of like fifties and sixties, um, translated by Markham Green, and that was where I think where I first came across the work of Conrad Bayer and um, so Unica Zern and um, so Hans Henny Jan as well. Um, which you know, it's one of those books you sort of read, and it it it, it was a bit of a revelation. You know, I sort of think, wow, this is this is very exciting. And, and then of course, At um, Atlas gradually went on and kind of you know published. Sort of readers of kind of buyer, and then a bit later, sort of buyer's novel, um, the head of writer's bearing. Yeah, which I've read as a very strange book. <laughs> yeah, it's um, great, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and we will send out links to to more of those after the show. Um, I don't know if you'd like to maybe read one more extract from uh, from Index. I think we've got a couple of minutes. If you'd like to give a bit more of the the book. Yeah, I'd be delighted. Um, I'm just going to read a, a short section, which I'm um, going back to some stuff we've been talking about, kind of London things. This is, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, 1992. I walk past the site of Newgate Prison, indicated by a small plaque in the wall of Barclays Bank. The space it once occupied is dense with offices. I look right across the road to the walls of St Sepulchre's Church and wonder if the tunnel which connected it with the condemned cells is still in place. There would have been a wedge of buildings in the middle of the road where the traffic lights stand now. A second tunnel linked the prison with the Old Bailey, so prisoners going for trial never got to see the light of day. The floor of this tunnel was thickly covered with herbs to resist the passage of infection. One year these precautions failed and an epidemic of jail fever decimated the officials of the court. The romance of these tunnels, a neglected hidden network stretching in every direction under the city, fascinates me. Close by, a cement mixer starts up and my teeth begin to rattle. I buy a bar of Swiss chocolate at WH Smith and walk along Hoban Viaduct. A bus passes me, but I don't want it yet. I pause on the bridge. The chocolate is delicious and I'm eating it much too fast. On my left is the Mirror Building, behind me Smithfield. I know this area in my head from reading maps. There has been a building called the Saracen's Head on Snow Hill 
for 500 years. I look down on the street below me, which follows the course of the vanished Fleet River. Suddenly I am angry with myself for knowing this, and crumple the silver foil and purple wrapping into a ball to fling into the wind. In memoriam Fritz Lieber, who died a week ago, I could not summon up a smoke ghost as fine as his, but have tried to catch a bit of the dark world in the midst of a phantom city. Great, thank you. Um, that was an extract from uh, Index by Bridget Penny, published in 2008 as the opening entry of Bookworks Seminar Series, which we're discussing today on Suite 212 here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Uh, I'm your host, Juliet Jakes. We've got 20 minutes left, so I would just like to um, kind of go back to some things we, we touched on further uh, at the top of the show. Um, maybe we can talk a bit more about the challenges of curating such a series. I've read four of the texts. Um, I've read Bridget's. I've read uh, The Dark Object by Katrina Palmer. We'll come back to that in a minute. I've read Mercedes-Benz by uh, Ifgenia Bell, and I've read Aliasing by Mara Kosen. Um, and they're all quite varied in terms of their their style, um, who's who's writing them, uh, where and when they're set. Um, and I wonder if we could talk a bit more about sort of finding some coherence for the series when the texts are so varied. I think it's uh, a reflection of uh, my tastes, and if people trust my taste, then they'll get a book they like. Uh, it's also a question of what comes in from the open submission. So one of the books we haven't mentioned is uh, Hannah Leo's book, Rape New York, <coughs> which in some ways isn't fiction, um, but deals with her literal rape in New York. And in terms of editing, brings up the same problem as with Mara, because these were the two non-native English-speaking authors. Uh, so Hannah is uh, Spanish, and... Um, She's not the only Spanish native Spanish speaker I've tried to edit English language um, in the English language. And I think sometimes there's some things you can say in one language and not in another, and the author is trying to say something that's quite difficult to say in English, and they can get frustrated with my editing because I'm not a Spanish speaker. Uh, and also because I want to break down the sentences, which tend to be longer in Spanish. Uh, so with Hannah, it was quite a difficult editing process, although I think we improved the book, and she did say that um, she recognised that I improved her use of theory. I don't think she was so happy with the rest of the edit. That was probably the most difficult edit. Uh, Mara is from uh, Manila in the Philippines. I've been to Manila and uh, Damagetti in the Philippines and a few other places, so I'm familiar with the culture. And in fact, in my last book, I was dealing with quite a lot of Filipino film, so I have a certain interest in Filipino culture and I've always loved Filipino exploitation film. Uh, so I could recognise some of what Mara was writing about. Again, it was probably a longer editing process just because uh, you're not dealing with a native English speaker, although Mara's English is very good. The final selection for whether it was her book or another book came down to my confidence of how good the English of each author was, because I'm always quite nervous about editing a non-native English speaker and Mara I thought would do the better job. It was a long process and as also happened with Hannah's book I had to pass it on to another editor at a certain point because you kind of can reach an impasse with, with the editing. Can we just describe a bit of Mara's book, uh, the, the themes it's dealing with, what it's about? Sure, she's um, taking a lot of Filipino culture and kind of making a patchwork with bits of Filipino history so you have the um, original Polynesian culture, uh, the invasion of the Spanish, a lot of Chinese influences, and Mara is actually um, Chinese-Filipino. And then you have the American influences coming in later on, so she's taking history of uh, kind of psychics and um, colonial excursions and the kind of ways different uh, people, uh, what different tribes were interacting with the colonialists and uh, creating a patchwork history out of that. But I also think relating it to what's happening in the Philippines now uh, with the political situation, I mean, she probably wouldn't want to say it's an allegory of what's happening with Duterte, but that was certainly how I read the figure of Cowboy, um, who's the kind of authoritarian mayor in the novel. That may not have been her intention, but that was certainly how I read, read the book. When it first um, 
I I wasn't involved in the editorial process of Mara's book, but um, the cover consists of again the the found element with a with a difference being that um, Fraser and Mara decided that um, they would get some rubber stamps made in in a market by some. Um, so it's the front cover is made out of three large rubber stamps that were sort of um, semi-directed as to how they would come out, and um, just to that that idea of the woven blanket was in the open call that I was still at Bookworks for, um, and um, that was a reference to the binacle blanket, which is a traditional weave, and that was how she was thinking about the title of aliasing and, and this sort of strange mare effect that happens when you're layering two things over each other and I think that was how she was reading the, the cultural references as this kind of strange shifting texture and textile. Yeah, um, I'd like to talk about one of the books that is um, kind of close to home in, in lots of ways for, for us. Uh, we've already kind of alluded to it, I've mentioned it, The Dark Object by Katrina Palmer. Um, which was entry number five in the series. Uh, this book is a satire of the art world and particularly kind of London art schools. Um, the protagonist is a character called Addison Cole who works at the School of Sculpture Without Objects, which as the title implies is an art school where the, the aim is to not make anything. Um, and you know, Addison Cole is caught up in this strange kind of bureaucracy, a lot of the book uh, consists of Cole getting these bureaucratic messages from faculty members and the book sort of becomes this official dossier and becomes this confrontation with, with the bureaucratic system itself. Um, Addison Cole kind of deals with not being allowed to make things by writing stories where the protagonists only meet through these kind of fantasy scenarios. Um, a lot of these involve um, your friend and mine, Slavoj Žižek, um, you know, the uh, psychoanalytic philosopher can be found at, um, at Birkbeck um, and traces a philosophical line from Hegel, um, Hegel through to, to Zizek in the 21st century. Um, uh, Katrina Palmer was at sculpture school at the Royal College of Art and at Central St. Martin's before that. Um, and in an interview recently, she said that she started to see the page as a really interesting space on which to explore ideas about contingent materials so I started to think about how sculpture could be a language-based inquiry um, and talks about how the everyday literary world is constrained by boundaries um, so was kind of interested in finding an alternative space between art and literature. Um, we've already talked a bit about how that's what Bookworks is doing mm. uh, but I wonder if any of you had any more you wanted to add on add on to that. Well I was thinking um, I mean the two that Stuart just talked about now don't have this relationship to performance but um so Hannah Leo I don't to my knowledge I might be wrong doesn't have a performance practice neither does Mara but um I came across Katrina Palmer's work in the context of a reading series that was um programmed alongside Andy Holden and Dan Cox's exhibition Chewy Cosmos Thingly Time and Katrina was part of a long series that involved um, Ed Atkins, Francesco Pedraglio, um, Gisdan Leung, um, Paul Becker, and um, Heather Philipson. And I'm probably forgetting someone. I think David Raymond Conroy as well. A big group of, of artists who have a written element and a performance element to their work and um, that negative space element of Katrina's work alongside performance and writing as a type of sculpture um, was very much in that exhibition in that series and she's since published End Matter with um, Bookworks and as an Art Angel project and that was about excavation rather than sculpture as building up and putting something in a space it was about much more about the negative space and um, in that reading she was kind of carving out this domestic violence type of situation by naming different um, furnishings in a room and the space between them and the interactions between them and that, that's where I first came across her work but this this thing is about I suppose the the Zizek character in the art school comes out of um, this 
prevalent attitude. I didn't go to art school myself, but I've heard of people going through sculpture programs, being asked in that interview as women, oh, you know, we deal with a lot of heavy materials and heavy tools here. Are you sure you're going to cope? You know, have, are you man enough effectively for this course? And um, sculpture obviously doesn't have to... A lot of people go through sculpture courses. They don't produce um, Richard Serra-style work. So, yeah, she's very much not... Um, Katrina Parra is not working in that tradition, and I suppose the dark object really exemplifies that. Yeah, and I wonder if we could just, you know, we've got just over 10 minutes left here on uh, Suite 212. I just wondered if we could talk a bit more about, uh, you know, I feel like the independent and kind of alternative publishing scene has changed an awful lot since 2008 when this series began. I mean, round about that time, I published a book with Dorky Archive Press, who, uh, you know, I was reading an awful lot of Dorky Archive uh, texts at that point. Um, and it feels to me like there is a much wider uh, landscape now of um, of kind of non-mainstream publishers, uh, but they're all quite literary. I'm thinking of Galley Beggar, Fitz Corraldo, Influx Press, uh, and others. Um, but they they're not kind of they're not occupying that that space closer to art publishing. Um, whereas you know, ten years ago, it felt like there was a big divide between literary publishing and arts publishing, and art publishing was often a lot more interesting. And I feel like that space is being closed down now. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm I'm kind of thinking that the 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 um, sort of um, the, the 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 sort of development of, of a lot of these presses has 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 been linked to two sort of different kind of funding models coming available, like um, um, sort of Kickstarter and and also um, subscription model um, subscription models where where people are, people actually um, subscribe to a press's output, and I I. I I think that's very interesting, it's, it, and, and perhaps it's a way of um, sort of connecting publishers more with their readers as, as, as well. And maybe that's that has had an influence on the kind of the kind of stuff that, that they are they are printing. And there's also, uh, I suppose, Dostoevsky, um, Wannabe, who, who, who put stuff out through Amazon, which 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 again is quite an interesting way of of, of um, sort of, um, producing and um, distributing books. No, there's the whole print-on-demand has come along yeah. a lot further. And you also notice a lot of academic books by big academic publishers are just POD. Um, so if you order it, it says printed by Lightning Source, or if you happen to patronise Amazon, it says printed by Amazon, uh, which, of course, I only discover when I buy second-hand copies. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, no, the, the POD and the e-book have kind of changed things a lot as well. I think everything's just smaller scale, and I think... Um, with those more literary publishers, uh, in a lot of ways they've taken over the function of the mid-list that the bigger publishers had and also some of the kind of bigger independents who are now trying to be more commercial, they're, they're taking over the role that they had as well. I suppose there's a kind of closeness to your immediate audience with social media as well. I, I um, I recently bought, I couldn't make it to the launch of Caspar Heinemann's Novelty Theory um, last week, which is published by 87 Press. And I think 87 Press are poetry. I don't know if uniquely, but there are a lot of s small poetry presses. And I suppose they're continuing in that vein of chapbook publishing. Um, maybe a press like PSS that Taylor Lamel and Rowan Lear run, that's maybe somewhere in between well, it is in between poetry and, and art. Um, and I guess that's somewhere that is really growing as well, poetry presses, but but then, yeah, there's a, there's a wider landscape maybe. I mean, I wasn't, um, I don't feel like I've seen many, many changes over a long time, but there is this, you see a friend kind of alerting you to a book and, and you know that there's this kind of proximity of influence that I'm, yeah, it's hard mm. to tell how. Ne you know, ne the network effect has been interesting mm. in certain cases. You know, I, 15 years ago, I started reading Anne Quinn, who, you know, is a Brighton based um, kind of, I would say, maybe neo modernist authors around in the 60s and 70s. We covered Quinn quite extensively on our, our show on British post modernist writing. 
um, at the beginning of 2018. Um, so for more on Quinn, uh, refer back to that. But I was a big fan of Quinn. I know, Stuart, you... Um, you like her work. And Bridget was reading um, Quinn in the 80s as well. Yeah, and lots, lots of people were reading Quinn, but maybe you know, she seemed like quite a well-kept secret, whereas I think over the last 10 years, you know, the emergence of a sort of social media um, set of people who are interested in innovative writing, mm. you know, have all realised that, you know, Quinn was important to us and have all talked about it. And Jennifer Hodgson, who was a guest on the, the show on, on British Post-War Literature, uh, you know, edited a, a, a compendium um, last year of Quinn's um, sort of, you know, unfinished work, articles, short stories and so forth. And, you know, this is leading to the Quinn works being reissued and Jen is working on a biography of Quinn um, and the Quinn um, novel is going to be reissued in this country, whereas before they were only available through Dorky Archive Press based in Illinois. Um, we've got just over five minutes left. I want to... Um, just read uh, a line, uh, a quote from an interview with another of the authors on the seminar series, um, Evgenia Bal, whose um, non-fiction novel uh, Mercedes Benz was published in the series last year, and it's it's a very sad novel in lots of ways. It deals with death and mourning and uh, how relationships are played out through Facebook and email and SMS, um, and how these things create kind of distance and silence, alienation, cruel romantic games, and so forth. Um, uh, asked about the, the way she writes, um, Baal says, I guess I'm begrudgingly learning to be more professional. I've always been decidedly anti-professional and highly suspicious of professionalism, mainly because I remember reading books when I was younger and thinking, how could I ever do that? But when I later came to realise, what I later came to realise was that this idea of the great author, the exceptional individual, is a myth. Almost all cultural produce, books included, goes through countless stages of editing and making, usually by multiple people. Weirdly, I think it's in these stages where the cost or worth of a book is defined rather than actual writing. The creative or the entertainment industries, whatever you want to call them, professionals seem to radiate a sentiment of, we are the ones who know what we're doing, you're a moron, so buy the book and shut up. So I've always liked the idea of being unprofessional as in opposition to that, but I suppose in the end, being professional is just knowing what you're doing, which sometimes means no knowing that the right thing to do is to let someone else do it. <laughs> Well, that's very generous, Esgenia. Um, <laughs> uh, she actually submitted The Hardy Tree, her first novel, to Seminar, and I thought it looked interesting, but she wanted a lot of illustration, so we decided not to do it. When we decided to do Mercedes-Benz, uh, I had quite a long discussion with Gavin, who wasn't happy with the state of the manuscript at the point it came in. Um, I said, no, look at the version of The Hardy Tree we had and look at the published version, and she was published, I think, mainly by a photography publisher, Clearly, she's done the editing on the book, and she can rewrite. Um, and honestly, the editorial process with her was a dream, because all I had to do was say, can you rewrite it again, please? <laughs> and it would come back improved, and then I'd do it a second time, and it was even better. So it was really very little work, work for me, because all I had to do was say, just another draft, please. <laughs> and she could do it herself, and I had absolute confidence in her ability to do that. Um, it's a very good book, and some of the things that inspired it. I was encountering Evgenia uh, while those were happening to her, so I was aware. It, it's definitely fictionalised, though. It's not a straight um, reportage of, of what happened with a particular relationship of hers, um, but at the same time, it was inspired by real-life events. Yeah, and, you know, she's, she's spoken very interestingly and very eloquently um about that we've got just uh, two minutes left so um i don't know if if there are any more books forthcoming in the seminar series or if you're still calling for entries no it was always meant to be nine books and the fact that we had a problem with uh two books uh meant that we did too late um in fact we weren't going to do mara's we had a north london um, author who was going to do the book but because we had a slight delay, she thought she'd found a better publisher, withdrew it, that publisher didn't publish it, so I'm not going to mention her name, and uh, the, her book still isn't published, but we'd have been very happy to do that, but we're very happy with Mara's as well. Mm. Yes, I mean, the, there were um, sort of nine issues of Wallace Berman's um, on seminar, I think. Right yeah, so, so yeah. we just wanted to do nine. Yeah, so aliasing is the latest. And last. Um, and last. If Jenny Abars is the one before that, and... I would reiterate, it's like reading someone else's messages on the one hand, but the craft, there's obviously a lot of craft that you don't notice reading it 
along the way and then there's an immense sense of I found it like an experience of grief mm. with the sort of um, progression of the of the work but um, in terms of what's coming next um, Bridget Penny is the guest editor of a new series that will be um, commissioned by Open Cool and the title of that series is Interstices it will include um, Bridget's own book Licorice and um, do you have a last word to say about that Bridget? Well I, I, I'm, just, I, I'm just very much looking forward to actually kind of do, uh, um, guest editing the series I mean yeah yeah, so check the Bookworks website for more details about that. Great. Thank you, everyone. That's um, that's all we've got time for today here on Suite 212 on Resonance 104.4 FM. I've been your host, Juliet Jakes. Um, we're hoping to have a show for you on Easter Monday. More details on our Twitter feed. We'll also have an episode of Suite 212 Extra for you soon featuring Hugh Lemmy talking about his new book. This programme has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.